0: From religion to wrestling, gumbo to grits, politics to poetry, and all things Southern in between, this is Take on the South. Produced by the Institute for Southern Studies and hosted by the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of South Carolina, Take on the South examines the highs and lows of the American South, examines the truths and fictions of the country's most distinctive region, and picks the brains of some of its most accomplished students. To understand the South, you need to take it on, and that's what we'll be doing. Join us as we Take On The South.
1: Welcome to Take On The South, the podcast of the Institute for Southern Studies at the University of South Carolina. I'm Matt Simmons, the Assistant Director of the Institute, and I'll be your host today. I'm joined by two guests today, one from Old England and one from New England. Uh, the Old Englander, y'all will know is the oftentimes host and voice of the show, Mark Smith, the director of the Institute for Southern Studies and a professor of history here at the University of South Carolina. And our New Englander is uh, Dr. Andrew Burns, an associate professor of history here at the University of South Carolina, originally from the greater Boston area from the town of Wayland, Wayland Massachusetts. They're both here to join me to discuss the ways in which those from outside the South, when they come to this place, find themselves having to unlearn and relearn what they thought they knew about this place, and in so doing, find themselves relearning and unlearning parts of the world that produced them. So I bring them here to have this interesting conversation today after having talked with Mark about this many times. Andrew, you and I had an interesting uh, time in my office this summer where you just happened to stop by to talk about podcasting. And we end up in a long discussion of how you, I think you, you've said, uh, the one thing that I remembered you told me more than anything was there are all these things that you have learned about the South that when you tell your siblings, they do not believe you, right? So we'll talk about some of that. But I wanna start with a bit of literature here. Uh, In 1936, William Faulkner publishes what is, to my mind, his most significant, his best novel, Absalom, Absalom, which, for those of y'all who have not read, uh, one of the more significant parts of the novel is this frame narrative where our main character, Quentin Compson, a 19-year-old college freshman from uh, Jefferson, Mississippi, a uh, stand-in for Oxford, Mississippi, uh, Faulkner's hometown. Quentin has gone up to Harvard. Uh, He's gone up to Harvard And whilst there at Harvard, and remember at this point in time, this is the very early 20th century, Southern gentlemen, if they were going to the Ivy League, went to Princeton, not to Harvard. So he's kind of this weirdo there. No one really knows what to do with him. And so the administrators end up sticking him with a Canadian, right, as his roommate. And early on in September, this is Chapter 6 of Absalom Absalom, uh, Quentin is recalling the question back in September that his roommate Shreve asked him. Well, it's not really a a question, it's more of a, a command to the southerner. Tell about the south, what it's like there. What do they do there? Why do they live there? Why do they live at all? Now, Faulkner's quite loose with punctuation, but in that little bit, he's always using periods, not question marks. However, in chapter nine, the final chapter, at this point, we're having this turnaround where the Canadian is beginning to re-interrogate the story that the Mississippian has been telling him throughout the novel and is going to move towards retelling it to the Mississippian. But he, but he begins that, he prepends that by asking this. He begins talking about how cold Quentin must be living in Massachusetts, being from the South. And he's thinking, if I would have come to here from the South, I would have brought better clothing, Quentin. But he says, maybe I wouldn't have come from the South anyway if I could stay there. Wait, listen, I'm not trying to be funny, smart. And again, this is the Canadian speaking. I just want to better understand it if I can. And I don't know how to say it better because it's something my people haven't got. If we have got it all, it all happened long ago across the water. And so now there ain't anything to do at every every day to remind us of it. We don't live among defeated grandfathers and freed slaves or have I got it backwards. Remind, and bullets in the dining room table and such to be always reminding us never to forget. What is it? Something you live and breathe in like air? A kind of vacuum filled with a wraith like and indomitable anger and pride and glory at, at and in happenings that occurred and ceased 50 years ago? A kind of entailed birthright, father and son and father and son of never forgiving General Sherman, so that forevermore, as long as your children's children produce children, You won't be anything but a descendant of a long line of colonels killed in Pickett's Charge at Manassas. Gettysburg, Quentin said. You can't understand it. You'd have had to have been born there. Would I then? Quentin did not answer. Do you understand it? So then, gentlemen, here the Canadian, and this was before World War I, when Canada was the most loyal of Victoria's daughters, if that's a, a fair thing to say, Mark. I think so and the sit here sat in your neck of the woods, Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, around the part of the world where you grew up in. Why do Englishmen, Canadians, New Englanders, why are you interested in, in Southerners telling about our place? And what do we not understand about this place? And what do y'all not understand about this place? And I'm going to sit back and I'll plug in some questions every now and again, but I'm really intrigued at hearing y'all's answers to this. So how long do we have for this conversation? <laughs> uh, well, I do have some bourbon somewhere I can find if we need to lubricate it you know, a bit more. We might need
0: Well, I don't know, Matt. I mean, these are the, the pressing and enduring questions that pretty much everybody has about the South. I mean, I, I think a lot of it depends on the individual reason for coming to the South. I came really to answer the Canadian question which was, you know, what, what is it about? What does it mean from a very academic perspective?
1: And what inspired that more? You've, you've briefly mentioned this on the podcast before, but what actually inspired that question for you?
0: It was a history class and a history class in an undergraduate at the University of Southampton. And I happened to take um, a US history class. And interestingly, given what Andrew does, most of my work was on British immigration and British Jewish history.
1: And Andrew, could you quickly speak about what it is you do for the audience?
2: Sure. I have two official specialties. I work on the history of the Jews in the pre-modern Mediterranean, and I also work on and teach about Renaissance Europe.
1: Fantastic. All right, Mark. So,
0: you know, there I was, and it was just an accidental course, and the chap who was teaching it taught at the University of South Carolina, and he assigned books. He was on international exchange. He was. He was. uh, He's retired now. Rob Weir, great colonial historian of South Carolina. And he assigned me a book called Roll Jordan Roll by Eugene Genovese. And the the thrust of that book is that the South, it's a complicated book, but the South is a pre-modern society, the old South, that is, the pre-Civil War South was a pre-modern society. And that fundamentally, it had all of the features of a pre-industrial, pre-modern society. And I don't know why that irked me, but it did. And I started to Ask questions. That about being
1: the existence of a pre-modern society in the Victorian era, in in what was
0: arguably the most modern country in the world at the time, I was studying this. So, say, how does say, this work? You know, how does this possibly happen? Surely there were all sorts of innovations in a society that relied on cotton um, and slave labor, and I started to ask the question: Is The idea of a pre-modern South itself part of the fiction of being the South. I got to a point where he just said, look, I can't answer your questions. You need to come to the University of South Carolina and go to the library. And you need to go through the old plantation records yourself to answer this question. And on, on route, you can get a master's degree and satisfy your curiosity. So that's what I did. I came with a very particular question. Um with a bunch of stereotypes that we can get, we can talk about in a moment, um, but that was my fundamental remit. It was a curiosity like the Canadian's curiosity. Um, and I think Andrew, you probably had a sorry, different background in coming to the South, um, not, not promoted in
2: the, with the same kind of academic question. Yeah, if you came from a place of curiosity, Mark, I came from a place of compulsion and reluctantly, because the job I now occupy was in fact the only job at a research one university or a fine liberal arts college, the year I was in the job market. And I came to the South with a lot of baggage. How long ago was this, Andrew? Nine years ago. Okay, okay. And I've come, by the way, and hopefully this will be drawn out during the conversation, I've come to really appreciate this state and this region and to have a lot of curiosity about its past, present, and future. But the beginnings were not auspicious. And I'm listening to you talk, Mark, puts me in mind of two antecedents. Antecedent number one, when I was 19 years old, like the character in, in Absalom, Absalom, I read Absalom, Absalom. Huh, how about that? And I read it in a course at Columbia University, where I spent a single semester, and it was taught by Barbara Fields. Hmm. And the course was called Telling About the South. And I took it on a whim because people had told me that Barbara Fields was a brilliant teacher and I'd never work harder and I'd never learn more. And those three things were essentially true. And we read Absalom, Absalom, and what struck me about that classroom was there was not a single Southerner in it. So to get back to your question, Matt, what is it about Canadians, Englanders, New Englanders that makes us so curious about the South and to want to hear people tell about it? So in a way, that course, as a naive 19-year-old, adumbrated my future in the South. Earlier still, I think my my first memory of the South is one of exclusion and trauma. It was 1989 or 90, and my family was watching Mississippi Burning on, I think, a VHS cassette or maybe television. And I would have been nine or 10 years old, and my family said, you may not watch this. It's too violent, it's too distressing. The racism is so overt that it'll scar you permanently. So I'm the youngest of three children. My older siblings and my parents sat on the couch and watched it. I was banished to my room. At some point, I snuck down out of curiosity, and I peered over the edge of the couch, and what I saw, I've never forgotten. I've never seen the film, but I'll tell you what I saw that moment. I saw an African-American family standing outside of a burning house, their faces illuminated by flames. And I saw white men in white robes holding torches, shouting imprecations against this African-American family. And I remember shuddering and then turning around and going right back to my room and thinking, this is the southern United States, no wonder why my family doesn't want me to see this movie. So did Roots have the same impact for you? Probably, you're probably too young, weren't you? I am a little young and it wasn't really in my can as a child or adolescent. So what Mississippi Burning did for you, Roots did
0: for me, um, that was really my first exposure to that representation of the South. And of course that's a series and that went on for, well, I mean, a whole year, essentially. I didn't think of that, though, as exclusively Southern, and I was young. Mm. I thought of it as American, mm. right? I didn't really have the cultural coordinates to think of it as the South. As you get older, of course, and so much of the South is filtered through this, this lens of consumption, visual culture, that it's diluted to the point where you're really dealing with very clumsy stereotypes, but they're the stereotypes that migrate and populate the imagination on the other side of the Atlantic. I'll give you another example, um, the Dukes of Hazzard. Mm-hmm. The Dukes of Hazzard was extraordinarily popular, and it has every sort of trope you could possibly imagine, right? Um, and it has the Confederate flag, and it's set in Georgia and what have you. These things sort of migrate. They're very clumsy, Um but I don't think I really held on to them very deeply. It was more of an academic question. And mm. as you say, you were, you were kind of by, by compulsion found yourself here.
1: I, I love, y'all have already gone to these uh, cinematic media representations of the South, which I think are really interesting. Of course, The Dukes of Hazzard is going to be popular in Britain because what is it? It's essentially setting in 1970s, 1980s. Kentucky or a fantasy version of that, essentially 14th century Saxon mythology, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's essentially Robin Hood fighting the Normans, right? You know, and, and Waylon Jennings even says this in the song, right? Yep. You know, fighting the system like it's two modern yep. day Robin right. Hoods. right? Yep. Yep. So, of course, it's going to be popular there. What I'm interested in that you point out, Andrew, and you mentioned roots as well, and many historians, subsequent historians, have taken Alex Haley to task for the ways in which there's a significant mythologi- mythological impulse in what he's doing rather than a verisimilitude, I'm not even trying to say that word. Verisimilitude. Uh, yes, 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 um, towards a sort of historical fact, right? And I'm deeply interested in this, and this is something that I talk to my students about often. The way in which the South is both fact, that is there is a real place called the South with, a, with real histories with real cultures, with real peoples, with real economics, uh, with real uh, facts that shape the place, but it's also a set of cultural mythologies and narratives, some of which Southerners ourselves create, and some of which are foisted upon us from without, and this has always been true. This has always been true, going back to De Soto, four hundred and fifty years, who, of course, was what, you know created many of these mythologies of the South. Uh, you know, and you know it, it's hard to know much about the De Soto voyages in English because so little of that, uh, at least to my knowledge, has been translated from medieval Spanish into into English, into modern English, um, the accounts of that voyage. But still, there's so much of. The South is a legend that Southerners and non-Southerners are always participating in making, which helps to contextualize and shape the facts of the South, but also sometimes ignores the facts of the South for other reasons. And I can't help but thinking, you know, I don't know your parents, I don't know your family, I don't know any other perspectives on things. But I'm always struck when I think about, because immediately what you went to was a sort of racist you know, a presentation, a racist Hollywood presentation of the South. Um, a Hollywood presentation of a racist South is a better way to say that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And you, But you're doing this in Boston and your parents tell you, I think you said, but you, the racism here is too intense for you or something like that. And this was 1989, 1990. We were 13, 14 years away from that Pulitzer Prize winning photograph, The Soul and of Old Glory, mm-hmm. taking in Boston where mm-hmm. you have a young
2: mm-hmm.
1: white man in Boston, taking an American flag and hurling it as if it's a spear, a javelin at a black activist. And this is a photograph I always show to my students. And when I ask them to guess where it's from, you know, they'll say, oh, Atlanta, Houston, you know, Montgomery, something like that. And then I will say, oh, this was taken in Boston. And if, if I have a kid from Massachusetts in the room, they will always go, oh yeah, that makes sense.
2: I've had a different experience, Matt, with students from up north and particularly from my home state. To wit, last semester when I was teaching founding documents, in a document from the north was the mention of a slave. And this young woman raised her hand and she said, professor, there weren't slaves in Massachusetts. And I said, really? <laughs> and she said, no, they were only in the south. And I, I was stunned and I took a moment and I turned to her and I addressed her by name and I said, let me guess what you learned in school you probably learned that slavery was an exclusive Southern phenomenon, that all white Southerners are racist, that Northerners had nothing to do with slavery and its perpetuation. And she's nodded, innocently, of course. And then I had to set about demolishing those presumptions. And as I was doing it, I realized that they were mine as well before I came here. So and so I, That's
1: what you were catechized into in you know Greater Boston Public Schools, right? And I went to
2: a very fine public school, one of the best in the state, And the teachers didn't have any malicious agenda. But, Mark, you spoke about the distance between the southern U.S. and England. There's also a distance between the southern U.S. and New England. And I felt that very much as a a child and as a young adult.
0: I'm really interested in this question, Matt, that you just raised about the facts of the South. And it's actually a much spongier issue than, than it sounds because... When I teach my Old South course, we begin with a very simple lecture on what is the South. And I don't think we ever really reach empirical agreement about what the South is today. Certainly we're on firmer ground when we talk about the Old South because you can identify it as a former confederacy or I mean, the the side that fights the Civil War, but even then it's extremely complicated.
1: Because no one excludes Kentucky from the South and it never seceded, and you know, places like Maryland had more slaves, there were more enslaved people in Maryland than were in Kentucky, and that does not secede, and this always becomes a thing. Yeah, it's
0: a huge problem. And, and then if you ask the students um, what do you think the South is, now bear in mind we have a, a significant proportion, a very welcome proportion of folks who are not from the South, uh, oddly quite a few people from New Jersey. And I think I have you know, my, my suspicions why, but nonetheless, they're in these classes to learn. Uh, just like they were in Colombia. But then you've got a bunch of you know native Southerners that are also interested in the course. But the South to them is a very spongy, non-empirical feel. Not even, it's, it's a geographic location, but even that collapses at the margins. So Maryland... Well, parts of it, Southern Maryland is Southern, but Northern Maryland isn't. South of Gainesville, Florida, not really very Southern. What happens when you get to the Western South, you know, it it starts to crumble. For most people, I think they will agree that there are core, deep Southern states that are kind of non-negotiable. But then there's the question, and the really powerful question of who is a Southerner? And I think that, to me, is the much more interesting question. Um, you know, it's is black southerners and white southerners. Is it possible to move to the south and become a southerner?
1: Yeah, this is a really interesting question that, you know, we all, my classes we struggle with quite a bit. We wrestle with, especially my class on the south since 1980 or thereabouts. When we talk about uh, South Asian immigration, Southeast Asian immigration, uh, uh, Latin American immigration, uh, the immigration of other Americans from other parts, the return the reverse of the Great Migration where African-Americans left the South in uh, the intra-World War era and when they start coming back in the 1970s. And even speaking of this question, when I ask my students to close their eyes and imagine who a Southerner is, almost to a person, they all describe someone who looks and sounds like me. And then when I point out that there's good sociological data and has been for 20 plus years, that black people in the South self-identify as Southerners at significantly higher rates than white people in the South do. This kind of blows their mind. And when I, you know, I ask, you know, who here understands himself as a Southerner? Um, you know, all the, it's, it's interesting, the African-American students from the South will all raise their hand uniformly, but significant, but a, 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 a identifiable few of white students from the Southern states will not raise their hand, because they might be from here, but they don't identify as such, which I think is, uh, I think, somewhat telling. Um, This gets to, so this is, maybe then, Andrew, this leads to me asking you this. In New England, of which a student from Massachusetts this semester told me they don't teach state history in Massachusetts, because American history is Massachusetts history, right? Sure. If Massachusetts, if New England, if the Yankee, you know, as this sort of quasi-ethnic construction, right, of what America means, uh, if that is how New Englanders, their own cultural mythology has taught them, has taught y'all to understand yourselves, what is the southerner for y'all? How does he or she function? Who is he? Who is she? What are the characteristics of her? what are her characteristics uh what are his foibles and how do they exist in contradistinction from the yankee and i don't mean that in the derisive way that the guy the white guy with the southern accent means yankee i mean that in the sort of descriptive sense of how new englanders historically thought of themselves the
2: southerner exists as a foil to us. A useful other. Yes. Okay, And if you'll permit me, I wanted to read something quickly. This is from the 1941 WPA Guide to South Carolina, written by Southerners, but there's a passage in here that I think exemplifies how certain New Englanders, even of my generation, see the South. He may live in Charleston, a Southerner, a South Carolinian, excuse me, a city that competes with a new Jerusalem in his dreams. Or he may live in a drafty Georgian country house with a three-tiered piazza, hidden behind live oaks and magnolias that drip curtains of gray moss above blazing azaleas, wisteria, and camellia japonicas. Or he may live in a cabin near a swamp infested by swarms of malaria-bearing mosquitoes and look out with dull eyes over acres he must till for an absentee landlord. But wherever he is... His attitude is keyed to leisure. He thinks in terms of ease and has a philosophical contempt for long-ordered hours of daily work, week in and week out. The possession or non-possession of material wealth is secondary to his ideas of personal value." we could say a lot about this and i'm sure you i'm sure you two could each speak for an hour but what this immediately reminds me of mark is a kind of agrarian fantasy of the south that partly animated your own research here years ago and i know this cuz in episode 0 You talk about this old belief that Southerners only saw the sun as the arbiter of time, and then you prove that clocks and a soundscape of bells and all the industrial machinery of the modern world were also applicable in an operation here. But I do believe there's something about a Northerner's vision of the South that is that, that is sort of dilapidated and hazy and philosophically contemptuous of work, is in fact stuck in a Middle Ages or in a pre-modern past. Now,
0: I think that's entirely right. I mean, this is, what, what you said was very W.J. Cash. I mean, this is, and that's really my point um, on this issue. The North needs the South to have all of those qualities, the North is not solely responsible for generating those qualities. Southerners do this with enormous appetite and did very quickly after the Civil War. When did Florida become a destination? Well, it wasn't 1980, it was 1870. Very quickly, Northerners, fatigued by the Civil War, end up going to the South, going to Florida in particular. And what does Florida do? They establish their own tourist industry. Come South, come to Florida. Restore yourself. It's quieter. It's slower. It's more agrarian. Get in touch with the past, which I thought was always very interesting. As opposed, and what the Southerners are doing there is rejecting the desirability of a Northern past as inferior, fretful, too industrialized, lacking the ability to offer a soothing environment. Come south. So it's partly created by Southerners themselves. The first part of that description that you just read reminded me of a sort of leaflet from Charleston today, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Come, Come to the Piazza. (laughs) This is precisely what we retail in. I heard a a commercial
1: from Mississippi Tourism yesterday that included the, uh, 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 paraphrasing Mm -hmm. here, it said something to the extent of, you know, come lazily float in a a real swimming hole. (laughs) This is part of the, you know, the Mississippi you know, tourist boards, you know, state tourist was boards. Was this you know. in Garden and Gun Mad? No, 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 this was, this was an audio <laughs> uh, an audio advert I heard on a podcast you know, uh, yesterday.
2: Yeah, I well, see, we do it. Yeah. And what you just said, Mark, puts me in mind of this book by Jackson Lears called No Place of Grace, about anti-modernism in America between the 1870s and the 1920s. And he talks extensively about the fatigue that Northern industrial hyper-civilized people felt. And they wanted to escape in time, in space, in mentality to other worlds. And the South was that quintessential other, lazily floating down a river, the tourist industry in Florida. And so I didn't know this about the historical origins of tourism in Florida, but it makes perfect sense to me given this sense of ennui that Northerners are experiencing at the time. And
0: I think Jackson Lewis was right for an additional reason. It's not just Northerners that are attracted to the South for that reason. It's people across the across the Absolutely, it has that kind of. I mean, if you think about vacation um, literature, it is sold in Europe too. This is not just a northern market. Like, come come to the south now. Partly, of course, they were retailing in ruination. Right, come and look at the ruins of the south. But even that was incorporated into the idea that it was a an escape, a place that stepped outside of. Radical urbanism, radical industrialism, and we've kept hold of that despite the fact that the reality itself, this fact of the South, the empiricism underwriting this, has changed enormously. This, these, these questions, I think, you know, they've really attracted some of the best, most thoughtful historians, um, and they're not really questions that we ask anymore because we tend not to, to ask questions about the American national character, right? They used to be a very popular question back in the 50s and the 60s. And when you're not ask, asking that question is what is an American, then it becomes less common to ask what is a southerner? But some of the most interesting answers to this um, were produced precisely in the 50s. In particular, C. Van Woodward, who's probably my favorite historian of the entire region and, and period, um, he said there were really two f- distinguishing features of the South. Um, well, he said there are a few more. But one was its commitment to racism, um, but he did fully recognize that it was hardly exclusive to the South as a degrees of question. The second was that the South is distinctive in the 20th century, largely um, because it was the only region or only area in the United States that had the experience of loss military loss. Of course, you know, you could argue that because Native Americans had their military losses and what have you, and there's all sorts of dispossession going on throughout American history. But as a part of of white America, that loss, he said, veined the kind of psychology of the South. And lastly, and this speaks to this question of your WPA evidence. Uh, The South was a place that was unique because it had an enduring experience with poverty. Mm -hmm. And while that might sound strange when you have the wealthiest Americans in the antebellum era living in the South as planters, if you factor in the nil per capita income of 3.8 million enslaved people, it is poorer. And it's certainly poorer after the Civil War because let's recognize the Emancipation Proclamation noble, much needed, essential, was also, uh, at the stroke of a pen, relieved the South of billions of dollars of human capital. It's not until 1957 that the South's per capita income begins to equal the national per capita income. So this experience of poverty, I think, is very interesting. But have we moved beyond that? Um, And I think, I think there, are t- there there's a way to look at this: the very modern South, you know, the post World War South, and then the interwar South. And when I say interwar, I mean Civil War to the Second World War.
1: Well, I, so I love what you're saying, Mark, and I want to speak to the way in which the fantasy of poverty and the fantasy of wealth and privilege, both of which are being featured in that WPA uh, narrative uh, introduction to the WPA uh, works there, uh, how this figures particularly in the northern mind, uh, and how it figures in media again. So, one of the things I begin my literature class, I normally begin my literature class with, is this uh, 1832 novel called Swallow Barn by John Pendleton Kennedy, which is, to my mind, um, the first really great novel, a um, uh, southern novel. Uh, it's a strange book, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a romant, it's a romantic satire, right? It's an unromantic romance and a non-satirical satire and a novel that's not a novel and it's just a book full of contradictions. But Kennedy, who was a Marylander, whose mother was from Patrician, uh, Patrician Virginia, and whose father was a, a Protestant-Irish immigrant, uh, an Ulsterman, I think, um, who comes to Baltimore and looks to Philadelphia and New York and Boston and Providence as you know the, this bourgeois conception of America. Kennedy in Maryland, this liminal place between North and South, is himself caught in these two worlds. And he, in 1832, um, writes this novel uh, about a New Yorker who goes to visit and tour his co- his distant cousin's uh, plantation in the Tidewater, Virginia, called Swallow Barn. And it's a complex book, but so, and it, it's very funny and very strange, um, but there's this one moment uh, 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 at the end of chapter 31 that I pulled up here, so there's been... Uh, at this point, there's a sort of a uh, there's been a break in the overall plot. The narrator, the uh, Manhattanite and his cousins, they go and they have some pleasant pastimes of various sorts on this summer morning. And the New Yorker, who has come south, says this, and this is 1832. The New Yorker, who is our narrator here, says, "With such amusements, we contrive to pass our mornings not listlessly but idly." This course of life has a winning quality that already begins to exercise its influence upon my habits. There is a fascination in the quiet, irresponsible, and reckless nature of these country pursuits that is apt to seize upon the imagination of a man who has felt the perplexities of business. Ever since I have been at Swallow Barn, I have entertained a very philosophical longing for the calm and dignified retirement of the woods. And then this, I begin to grow moderate in my desires, that is, I only want a thousand acres of good land, an old manor house on a pleasant site, a hundred Negroes, a large library, a host of friends, and a reserve of a few thousands a year in the stocks in case of bad crops, and finally a house full of pretty, intelligent, and docile children, with some few, et is not worth mentioning. And I doubt not after this I shall be considered a man of few wants and great resources within myself. This, in some ways, becomes the, at least a part of a fantasy of. The north for the south, right? Uh, you know, we used to talk about students from New Jersey. I have this stereotypical character I always joke with my students about. The guy from New Jersey who comes to the University of South Carolina rushes Kappa Alpha or Sigma Alpha Epsilon, um, sells his BMW M3, buys a Z71, um, Pickup and for his four years here adopts a, um, a an affected southern accent and becomes more southern than any southerners and my students all laugh because they all know this guy mm-hmm. yeah. some of them have, some of them like are that guy admitted to being that guy and you know several young ladies have said I've dated that guy before right so uh, that's a part of the southern fantasy but also going back to Mississippi Burning things like you know that great film in the heat of the night in the heat of the night a film if I remember right uh, written by a Canadian. Um, in which Carol O'Connor, the racist sheriff, um, uh, who plays the racist sheriff, is a New Yorker, right? And in which it's all done in Hollywood, in which there's this construction of, no, this is the bad savage South. So the South for New Englanders, Northerners, uh, is always this usable, other, this foil, you say, sometimes the great escape from the excesses of the Gilded Age, um, the, the, the sort of uh, you know, income inequalities you know, that are there, to which everyone can imagine to being a great lord and you know, owning a hundred slaves and a thousand know, acres and that being very moderate in one's desires. This is patently ridiculous, of course. Either that or this savage place that we are so much more enlightened than. So this brings me back to sort of the key question of the whole conversation, Andrew. Specifically when you came south nine years ago, What did you have to unlearn from New England? And then Mark, while he's answering, I'll be jumping to you momentarily. What did you have to unlearn coming from Old England?
2: Well, one of the things I had to unlearn is that every white southerner is racist. That is what I came to believe as a child and as a product of the Massachusetts public school system. And I I don't want to lambast my native state. It has many virtues. And I think that it, it struggles in, see, in trying to see a South other than Bull Connor hosing down protesters, right? And these, these terrifying moments from the civil rights movement.
1: And does it struggle to see a South other than that for its own purposes as a way to avoid its own monsters? Sure.
2: And so I'll tell an anecdote, it's a delicate one, but I think it's appropriate for this space. I am a squash player and the game, uh, which is like racquetball, if your listeners don't know it, Mark's smiling at me because an Englishman, he certainly knows what squash is. And I came from the University of Pennsylvania, which had at the time deluxe squash courts and now has even more deluxe squash courts. And I came to South Carolina via a year in Los Angeles and one in Florence, Italy, not Florence, South Carolina, which caused a whole series of dislocations internally, but another time. (laughs) And I found myself playing squash in an abandoned laundry facility near Owens Field. Here in Columbia. Here in Columbia, with two white Southern men in their 60s, one of whom is always armed, not physically on the court, but he has a gun in a bag that he brings with him to the squash club. And these two older white gentlemen are playing squash and I'm sitting on the balcony watching and this young shabbily dressed african american man walks in and i felt myself stiffen and as i felt myself stiffen i started judging myself immediately oh god andrew you're you are the racist incarnation of what you thought the south was but my discomfort was because i was programmed to think that these two white older southern men one of whom is always armed is going to at the very least hate this young man and in in the worst horrendous Scenario imaginable. Shoot him. You were, this is going you through were my head. You're going to be privy to an execution. Yes. What you're saying. Here. So the young man walks in, and one of my friends sees him, stops playing squash, comes out, and my blood pressure is rising. Right. What does he do? He says, "Hey, how's it going? We've got beer and water in the fridge. Do you want a drink?" And the guy <laughs> accepts a bottle of water. And they, the three of them sit down together and just start hamming it up, and it turns out they know someone in common, they both know the guy who owns the laundry facility, someone worked for someone's cousin, and they just started having a grand old time. And I sat there stupefied. And it, even as I tell it to you now, it sounds a bit exaggerated, as if I am perpetuating one of these Northern stereotypes about the South, converse to the racist ideology, but I was really frightened that what I was about to witness was if not an execution, then at least a moment of racial tension. And I learned in that moment that the self is infinitely more complicated than what we think. And to get back to another point that you both made in episode zero, it resists binaries and binaries are not helpful when thinking about the self, either historically or in the present. Oh, that's very
0: interesting. I, I can't say I've ever had to manage that kind of a, Anticipated or imminent emotional physical engagement, um, largely because I saw the South as simply part of America. I mean that that's the dis the the difference that distance makes is that it is part of America and it shares all sorts of things with Americans. I suppose, in a way, Andrew. I mean, you I, your telling is much more sophisticated than mine because even though I came to this from an academic perspective, um, I ended up sort of just thinking about some of the clumsier talisman of what what it is to be Southern, and that I actually had to abandon, but frankly, I've actually kept hold of some of them, and I'll give you examples. Um, The variation and the complexity and the texture notwithstanding... And I think that's absolutely essential to what we do, the texture and the exceptions. Um, I do think that there are certain Southern things. And I think for me, um, that haven't changed over time. These are are some of the stereotypes that I I still carry that I haven't had to unlearn. One is the sound of the South. Uh, There is a Southern accent to my ear. And... I recognize that might not be true for Americans generally, although I suspect it is, Um, notwithstanding the immense variation from the Appalachian accent down to Charleston, which is barely intelligible in some people's mouths, what did you say? Um, And I think, for me, the sound of the South is a constant. The second would be food and the taste of the South. And, of course, a lot of this is very sensory since I'm interested in this. And, again, the variation is enormous, right? I mean, there is, perhaps there is a Southern cuisine, perhaps there isn't, but there are certain little things that trigger you off. So, you know, I've, I've been to Massachusetts many times, but you cannot, unless you ask for it, get sweet iced tea. And then when you do ask for it, people say, well, why? <laughs> why would you want this? So it's not... These are just clumsy examples, but I've kept hold of them in a way. I sort of – see what the sound of the south was one thing I came with. I haven't really let go. Um, the idea of a southern cuisine, its specifics alluded to me at the time when I moved here, and I've never gotten used to grits, and I probably never will.
1: I'll make them for you sometime. Well, you I'll know,
0: everybody you says this to me about grits. They're really great if I make them for you, or – <laughs> well, if you have them with, <laughs> you've got to add something to them. I'm like, yeah, that's my point exactly. You have to add something. Um, so there are other little things like that that I, I keep hold of um, that I haven't had to unlearn. But I, I, and the other thing I haven't had to unlearn, essentially, because I've read a lot of travel literature, not from Northerners going to the South in the 19th century, but from the South Southerners going north in which they basically re-inscribe every stereotype you can imagine that's projected onto the South. Uh, You see this a great deal. So I I like to look at it both ways. What are Northerners saying about the South before the Civil War? Um, But what are Southerners saying about the North? And in a way, they're in this poetic dance of perpetual recycling of these stereotypes. And if you walk outside this door, you'll see a bunch of photographs of influential southern intellectuals that have passed through these august halls. And one of them is Jim Dickey, who was a very influential professor here and uh, one of the most influential poets um, in the United States in the 1960s and 70s. I think he was the poet laureate at some point. But of course, Jim Dickey's known, not really for his poetry today, but for deliverance. And deliverance is one of those things that people just hang on to the South. Well, he's a southerner making this. I mean, he makes the South with this, not just through the novel, but through the movie. So there are certain things that while I don't believe deliverance to be true, it nonetheless has this capacity to allow you to imagine certain things to have authenticity about the South. Uh, The music, for example, even though it's just one sliver of a note of an entire uh, script, that still is very Southern. And if you listen to our podcast at the beginning of it, you'll hear some of that. Sure. Because um, I asked our fabulous composer to include some of that. So I'm not sure that I've abandoned all of them. And frankly, I'll go one step further. I'm not sure if I want to. There is a reason I've been here almost 30 years. It's not because I dislike the North or Massachusetts or California. I think they're very fine places. My intellectual guts are rooted here uh, I like the people. I like the space. I think the space for me is quite important. I don't want it to be Kansas space, but I don't need it to be European, Cambridge, Massachusetts space. There is a, an american to this, but also a southern to the way that spatial arrangements are in the South. And they, they, they are definitely historical, but they're also contemporary. And then I would also say this by way of of wrapping up my very long commentary here. I do think that academics in particular love this question about what the South is, right? What does it mean? And of course, you know, this is what I do. I, you know, this Matt and I do this for a living. But fundamentally, I don't think when you get outside of a university, I don't think Southerners are asking themselves, Am I Southern? And it is that absence of that question that I think makes them Southern. Right. They're not so consciously interrogating themselves about, am I being Southern today? Is this a, It is a lived experience.
1: I mean, I'll be frank with you. I mean, to speak to that point, at my junior year of college, uh, I read Faulkner for the first time. I took a Faulkner seminar, and I was introduced to this notion of Southern literature, and I found this whole notion of being a Southerner. And this is, you know, I'm a reasonably intelligent, you know, 21-year-old at this point, but you know i knew that there was the south and the north in the war and i knew you know the about you know the you know daddy you know uh took me to gettysburg when i was 10 and we stood at the top of the at the top of the hill and you know he made me say this is uh my ancestors fought and died here right um because we did um we got you know that far north well this the fantasy was that we actually found out the reality years mm-hmm. later it was mm-hmm. much much uh, much messier in that uh, my great-great-great-grandfather um, didn't get to Pickett's Charge. The romance wasn't there. He was shot in the jaw on the first day um, at Gettysburg. But so I had that there, but I never thought of myself as a Southerner because why did I need to think of myself as a Southerner? It's like asking a fish what water is. It just is. So
2: this is that point. Um, I'd like to jump in if I can. This theme of loss is very powerful and it's quite moving to hear you speak about your ancestors and that experience of loss. This is something that strikes me, has struck me since day one here. And For example, wandering around the Statehouse grounds and reading monuments erected by the Daughters of the American Revolution, who elegize Civil War veterans from the Confederate Army who, and I'm going to paraphrase but misquote badly, who even though they may have been fighting for misguided beliefs nonetheless believed in them very strongly, and that it gave me pause the first time I read it, and it still gives me pause. And I think to broaden that out a little bit, this sense of having lost something, if it's Eugene Genovese kind of romanticizing the life of Southern slaveholders in um, The Sweetness of Life, The Posthumous Collection, or The Mind of the Masterclass, two books which Mark Smith lent me kindly, um, or The Daughters of the American Revolution, thinking about the more recent past, it is, it's something that has deep roots in this region, and they are not present where I grew up. In David Hackett Fisher's book, Albion's Seed, and I have no idea if this is taken seriously by people who know anything, AKA you guys, but I quite like it. And he traces four British folkways in colonial North America, one of them is, is Massachusetts, of course, And he's very good on Calvinist theology, which informs Puritanism. And one of the features of Calvinist theology, as Hackett Fisher points it out, is this belief of election. That these Puritans who left England in the 1620s, 30s and 40s really believed they were chosen by God. And I think in a certain way that still permeates the mentality in New England. That does not permeate the mentality here in any experience that I've had. I also wanted to respond to a couple of things Mark said when he mentioned sound and taste and music. With regard to sound and accents, it is inescapable for me too, Mark. I'm not a foreigner, but I'm always sensitive to accents here, and when I first got here, fresh from Italy, having spoken a lot of Italian that year, I reverted to my native Patois, which is very fast, and I'm speaking more slowly now than I would have when I first got here. And I had students come up to me in the first week of class and say, Professor Burns, we can't understand you. Can you slow down? And I didn't judge them for being slow or simple-minded. I mean, those would be horrifically biased reactions from a northerner. I realized that I was racing and being logorheic in my lecture delivery, and I had to slow down and make myself understood. Music. I'll skip food for now, because there's too much to say about it. One of my closest friends here is a retired herpetologist who worked for the Department of Natural Resources for 25 or 30 years, a guy called Steve Bennett. I know him not as a snake man, but as a musician, because when I got here, I played the mandolin and was looking for a mandolin teacher, and he very kindly agreed to teach me, and then after a while he said, stop paying me and doing this formally, just come over and we'll hang out and we'll jam. Steve is Southern and from rural Georgia, and his family was in the shrimping and fishing industry, and he has memories of crates of shrimp being dumped on his doorstep early in the morning when his uncle couldn't sell the excess catch, and then they would have a big fish fry and they would cook up shrimp. In other words, he comes from you know, fairly modest circumstances in the rural South, and he's white. And most of what we were playing together was kind of old time fiddle music and bluegrass, which is not really my inclination musically, but Steve is so appealing and so dedicated to it that I wanted to learn from him. And one day I said, Steve, I'd like to play some Cuban jazz. And he didn't flinch. He said, okay, what do you want to do? And I said, well, of course, you know the Buena Vista Social Club, this famous movie from the late 90s or early aughts, very banal of me, but I I, I invoked it. I said, let's play El Cuarto de Tula. And he said, never heard it. And so I put it on and he was fascinated by the rhythms and the chord changes. He said, give me a week, Andrew, come back next week. Let's talk about this. I came back the next week and he had transcribed not only the basic chord structures and the rhythms, but a trumpet solo. And he had transposed it from a trumpet to the fingerboard of a mandolin. And this is not an isolated incident. And I, to get back to the South, is there a Steve Bennett in Massachusetts or Michigan? Maybe. But is there something very distinctive about his combination of small C Catholic curiosity, uh, wonder about the natural world, musical veracity in terms of what he's interested in and what he'll dive into? To me, there's something, I can't put my finger on it, that's quite Southern about that. Hmm. Yeah, that is interesting. Um,
0: can we pick up on the speed business? I think there is there is something to this. A lot of um, African-American literature about the South will often talk about the importance of walking, walking from place to place, uh, largely because during slavery, African-Americans couldn't walk very far without permission. So so an element of freedom was the ability to walk without limitation. And walking, to me, is, is something quite Southern in this regard is the speed of the walking. Mm. And when I first came here Mm. and I came here in as a graduate student in the summer of 1989, it was just before Hugo hit about three weeks, four weeks. And there I was, um, wearing my jacket, right. In the summer in Columbia, South Carolina, because that's what I did. Moreover, I would walk really quickly from my house to the library, and I'd be drenched by the time I got there, but I kept doing it. It took me ages to walk slowly. And one of the ideas, the kind of the conceits about the South is that it's slow, and people walking slowly just reaffirm that, they re-inscribe that. But there's a bloody good reason why people walk slowly, because it's hot, and you don't want to walk quickly, but we've, we both grew up in urban areas, where you walked quickly because you could afford to. In fact, you were required to. You walk slowly in London and you will find yourself on the pavement quite quickly, not very healthy. There is a kind of... But there is a a kind of geographic reason and an environmental reason why people behave as they behave in the South. And that's just one illustration of it. Quick talking is another, right? We've just inherited it and that's what we do. Um, My students said the same to me when I first came here. Can you slow it down? Well, the reason you talk quickly growing up in London is because you have a lot of information to convey very quickly in an urban environment. Not so much Where it. there's
2: a lot else competing That's right. sonically That's right. with your yeah. voice. Yeah, you've got to battle your way in. And
0: here it's, it's a more, the cadence is different. The openings for intervention. Are and the way that Southerners tell stories are very... They, there's a length to them stories are quite long and they're carefully built and they're really interesting but you have to get used to the pacing with your ears absolutely because if you don't you get frustrated
2: yeah it is a old chestnut that parts of the rural south preserve Elizabethan English and Zora Neil Thurston writes about this, it's quoted in Genovese's introduction, the book that you lent me, The Mind of the Masterclass, and she says that not only are, the, are certain words preserved and certain cadences preserved, but the pleasure of speech for speech's sake is part of the South, white and black, she mm-hmm. says. Right. And I remember my first conversation with you, Matt, it lasted an hour and 45 minutes, and I came by, thinking we were gonna chat for 20 minutes. I had blocked 30 minutes in my calendar. I'm such a Yankee. <laughs> and it was fascinating to talk with you. It went on and on and you just, you didn't have it. It seemed like you didn't have a care in the world. No, oh, we could have gone
1: for another three hours. At some point I would have pulled the whiskey out and we would have just kept going.
2: Yeah, and you mentioned at the end of that talk, your is it your grandfather? your yeah, granddaddy, yeah. Who yeah, would yeah. say, you tell it.
1: Uh, so granddaddy would always say, you know, we'd go for Sunday dinner or something like that after church and we'd get up, you know, to leave and granddaddy would, uh he ate, chewed tobacco, and that's what ended up killing him, unfortunately, but um, uh, from throat cancer. But he uh, would spit in his spit bottle and say, "He'd stand up, you know, out of his chair, and he'd Well, 'Well, y'all might we've been there for you know, three, four hours. Is y'all might as well stay a while, you know? Might as well <laughs> yeah. stay a while, right? right?'" Which was this thing where that's there was it, there isn't an elaborate song and dance there. There is, you know, when you're saying you might as well stay a while, there is the you might as well stay, but there's also. Um, now might be the time for you to start politely making your way to the door, and you kind of have to know how to do the dance just right, depending on who's saying it, how mm-hmm. it's said. There's all these very elaborate sort of social rules, like when I teach my students about the complexities of the term, bless your heart, or uh, or, or, or you know, or, uh, or northerners, uh, when they get called ma'am or sir here, are very perplexed by this sometimes, because there's an entirely you know complex reason for this too, right? um And so it's a part of that, but it, but there's a genuineness to it. Y'all might as well stay a while, like mm. you know, let's just start again. And I can't tell you how many times I've been at someone's house. We go to leave, and then we end up staying another hour, and then we go to leave again, and we stand in the driveway for another ninety minutes, and then we finally <laughs>
2: leave. Mm-hmm. So it's
1: a three-hour process of leaving, and this is not atypical. No.
2: And I I wanted to pick up a thread earlier in the conversation, Mark, you spoke really eloquently about what you don't want to unlearn, and how there are certain things that you prefer about the South, and when you're in California and Massachusetts, to use your examples, you miss the South a bit. And for me, at the risk of sounding too vague, it's the distinctiveness of the South that I miss when I'm not here, and that I long for. What does that mean? The South to me is incredibly diverse, not just in the optical, obvious sense of a state that's 38 or 39% African-American. There are many other racial, ethnic, and religious groups here. And there is a tremendous range of experience. And then when I travel North and West, in some ways I feel like the world becomes more monochromatic. And it could be that my range of experience in Oregon or Massachusetts or Vermont places that I've been recently is more circumscribed than my life here. I'll give an example. In 2020, just before the pandemic, my wife and I went to a musical event at a now closed yoga studio near Williams Bryce Stadium. So right away you have this contrast between mainstream Carolina football mania Mm -hmm. and a very ethereal hippie-esque yoga studio. And this musical event featured a college-aged African-American um, beatmaster, followed by a 65-year-old white woman playing an acoustic guitar with her band. Mm-hmm. And the audience was the same. There was no turnover. It's not as though after the young African-American um, beatmaster stopped playing. There was an exodus and then an ingress of a whole other crowd. It was the same group. People danced to him. And then this woman who has since become a friend and musical collaborator, who's now in her, her early 70s, she starts singing this very melodic, a little bit spacey, etheric, self-Asian-inspired kirtan music with a synthesizer player, her on the acoustic guitar, and a mandolinist. And... I was just transfixed by all of these contrasts. In the shadow of a hulking Mm spaceship-like football stadium Mm -hmm. is this little hippie yoga studio where a young black man is mixing in front of us and then this hippie group plays. And it all (laughs) felt very seamless and very typical of what makes the South so diverse in the fullest sense of Mm -hmm. that term. Mm -hmm. Let let me ask you a question, Andrew.
0: When you're back in Massachusetts or Vermont or wherever, is it the case that you don't think of yourself as a northerner? The only time that you really do think of yourself as a northerner is when you come back to South Carolina, or is that not the case?
2: I'll answer by t- with another story slash quotation. My beloved PhD supervisor, David Ruderman, once said to a class, wasn't one-on-one, he said it to a class, when I'm in Israel... I feel like I'm an American, Mm -hmm. and when I'm in America, I feel like a Jew. Mm -hmm. And my transposition of that quotation to you, Mark, you've already anticipated it, it's when I'm up north, I know who I am, and I know that I'm a Yankee born and bred, but I don't feel one by choice. Mm. And when I'm here, I am attracted to and drawn by and moved by so much of what's wonderful here but I'll never be a Southerner. And I've been told by Southerners that I'll never be a Southerner, which didn't feel aggressive or hostile or exclusionary. It felt realistic. Mm -hmm. You can't talk like this with hair like mine, with an attitude like mine, and be a Southerner.
0: Because if you tried, and the example that Matt gave earlier of these folks who come south and trade in their BMWs for trucks and what have you, it's lacking the authenticity of it. It would be an affectation. And and it, and it it would make a mockery. And that's not the point of the exercise. So in a way, you know, ultimately, the invitation to be a southerner is a, is a fictional one. You can be a, a kind of resident one, but you can never be, you're in but not of, to borrow Genovese's famous phrase. And I'm fine with that. Um, I wouldn't want to pretend otherwise. Um, but that's what makes it very interesting to me that there is an invitation of sorts, and you can get so near but you can't cross that line.
2: Another, go ahead, Matt. Oh, no, no, please, please, please. Very quick story. My first week in Carolina, so this is August of 2013. My wife had gone to Oregon where she had been chosen to participate in an incubator to help support and launch a new company that she was building. So I was on my own and I'd rented a room from a woman in uh, a neighborhood nearby. And I was walking somewhat dejectedly one late afternoon, early evening, and this older couple sitting on their screen in in porch called to me and invited me up, I kid you not, for a mint julep. And it was (laughs) like, I I felt like I was living in the world of William Alexander Percy and Lanterns on the Levee, where the planter class, the aristocrats, drink mint juleps. And small children suck down, to quote him, with calm rapture, the sticky, sweet, minty, alcohol-less, substance at the bottom of the glass
1: it, it should be a uh, it should be a silver drinking vessel it's not a glass if it's a glass it's being served wrong um, it's, <laughs> a, it's it's pewter or
2: silver if you're quite wealthy you. or if you're like me it's just silver plate thank so. you for that <laughs> so i'll come to the end of the story so we had this nice chat and i didn't know how to end things so what i said at the end of the conversation was It's been so lovely to meet you. Thank you for your hospitality and the drink. I'd love to reciprocate and have you over for a drink sometime. And they both startled. And the woman said to me, well, Andrew, That's kind of you, but I think we better leave it here. (laughs) And I've told the story many times to a number of Southerners, and to a person, they all are puzzled by that response. I've heard people say, maybe they thought you were trying to swing with them. I've heard them say, (laughs) maybe you thought, maybe they thought you were trying to escalate the social obligation that you felt. I've heard them say, maybe they just didn't like you and didn't wanna go over to your rented room for a drink. It's a bizarre story, but it combines the hospitality with this sense of stay where you are for now. Yeah.
0: Let me give you my take on that, which I think is fascinating, is a really interesting story. And I'm not haven't had that many experiences like that. But if you take the Genovese view of what it means to be Southern, right? That would be an anti capitalist response. Because they don't know they they don't want to have to engage in the Ledger book exchange. This is an act of generosity in and of itself without any (laughs) capitalization or valuation attached to it. That's, I think, what the Genovese interpretation of that would be. Because, you know, this pre market, pre capitalism thing, I don't believe all of it to be sure, Mm -hmm. but there is this sense of uh, we don't have to make everything transactional. I'm not saying that you were. Yeah. But you're from Massachusetts, and the idea is that the market matters, and you
2: transact, right? And my grandmother would have presented it to me as manners. Andrew, when you're invited over, you write a handwritten note, and then you invite them over. Yeah,
0: and I think my grandmother would have said exactly the same thing. Um, No way you could anticipate that reaction,
2: of course, but that's my guess anyway. Something like that is going on underneath Mm, I love that, Mark, because it's, it's one of the troubling bits in Genovese's book, and he's been criticized for it, this is your field, I'll tread carefully, but his claim that one of the things slave society did was present a bulwark against the atomizing forces of capitalism which destroy networks and cultural connections, and this is he has been criticized for romanticizing slavery and minimizing racism, I won't say more. But I love that you just isolated an economic motive and justification that lay beneath my manners and that was picked up on by this Southern couple. I love that. It, it might have been the case. I don't know.
0: But, um, yeah, there is that hesitancy. You don't find it that often,
2: to be sure. How old were they? I'm curious. They were in their probably mid-50s at the time, maybe late 50s. Might be
0: quite generational,
1: I I'll just say maybe it's a class thing mm. but you know i grew up you know i yeah you know, i grew up comfortable um but you know my parents both were uh, grew up in absolute grinding poor white poverty mm. and uh you know if we didn't thought you were suspicious we just wouldn't invited you over right mm-hmm. um and to basically even if we didn't want to come over we would have at least have accepted this as a cop and said oh yeah, yeah yeah that'll be great you know and then nothing ever happens right if you know we just didn't like you but this they ain't got no home training if that's how they're going to respond to you. I'm sorry, they ain't. Uh, so, we're, uh, you know, this is something I could spend you know, the next six hours talking about this, uh, but we do need to wrap it up. So I'll ask you a question. Both of y'all have said in, we've talked about what the South is and how non-Southerners understand the South and how Southerners participate in that understanding or that obfuscation of understanding, as it were, uh, at some length, we've discussed what the South is, how the South is uh, created both by Southerners and in a mythological sense by non-Southerners as well. And y'all have talked about the things that variously you had to unlearn about this place uh, and unlearn about your own selves to navigate this place. I guess the necessary corollary and follow-up to this is by learning about the South, What did you find yourself having to learn about Massachusetts, New England, England? What did you learn and how has the South brought to bear on the ways in which you understand that place from whence you came to the South?
2: You can, yeah, I'll please start, go um, and I'll start with an anecdote that seems to be my way today, maybe in general. <laughs> so it's a
0: very Southern response, by the way, the yeah, anecdote. anecdote. Yeah, okay. It is. Maybe I'm becoming more Southern than I know.
1: <laughs> That's you are. Wait until you tell that story that, you know, you go on, you know, I do this all the time. I'll tell these stories and they'll begin here. And then 45 minutes later, <laughs> <laughs> I'll be on something else. And then finally, I'll come back to the point. But I had to tell everything in between to get there. I right? know. I know the
2: point. There's a lot of affectation and pretense in the North, and there's a lot of genuine, unaffected behavior in the South. And I, again, I'm uncomfortable saying that it's such a binary, and you wanted to get away from them, but your question sort of invites such a formulation, Matt. Illustration. The other day, a student a student I've never taught before. This is a young academic semester as we meet the three of us this morning. He comes, he makes an appointment, he comes to talk to me, and his the first words out of his mouth are, Professor Burns, tell me about your relationship with... And then he utters a name of God in Hebrew that I'm uncomfortable saying to you, let alone for a podcast, because it's liturgically delicate, and it's not to be spoken of casually. And I... I bristled, both because of him asking using this name of God in vain, and also because his first question to me is, what's your relationship with God, essentially? And I realized in that moment, and then I had to educate him a bit about using certain names of God in a casual way, especially when talking to a Jew. He knew that I'm, I was Jewish because I told him that in class the day he made the appointment. And then I realized that I felt very guarded and defensive when talking to this kid, because I didn't really wanna talk about my relationship with God or my ancestral faith, or the degree to which I believe in his word, believe in some of the subjects that I teach in my course on Kabbalah, which I team teach, by the way. Shout out to my colleague, Matt Melvin Kushki. And this moment, this 45 minutes in my office, I think, illustrates what you're getting at, Matt, that in order to meet this kid where he is, which is a life of devout Christian belief, he told me that he spends an hour and a half every morning in prayer, Bible study, and meditation, which to him are seamless activities that congeal and combine, I had to drop some of my New England aloofness. And he really wanted to talk as two people, not as a 19-year-old student in my class, and a tenured professor, you wanted to talk person to person about faith and history and what it means to have conviction in what you study and what you teach. And I think that if that anecdote had taken place at Harvard, for example, um, if I were there or any, any professor there would probably not welcome that conversation at all, even without the slip of using an inappropriate name for God. But here, there's such genuine interest and passion that I notice from so many students and people about so many different things that I can't help but sort of soften myself a little bit and open up to them as long as it's appropriate and not transgressing any professional boundary.
0: I, I've been here a long time so I, I tried to isolate the, the principal sort of signature answer. I think fundamentally for me The South has allowed me to abandon healthily and increasingly willingly the role of class, or at least my understanding and living through class. One of the great difficulties growing up working class in England in the 1980s, if you were reasonably bright, was this sense of limitation that you would never really leave you could perhaps become an accountant you were not going to become a barrister um that just your accent itself is so indexed to your class you can't escape it you're marked in all sorts of ways coming to the south for me was quite emancipating uh, And I could say that about America generally, although I did spend some time in the North, um, and they were fine people, don't misunderstand me. But there is an ear in the North that is equally sensitive to that accent, those intonations, those words. I'm more difficult to read in the North, but they could still read. In the South, I've never really experienced that. There is a great concern about accents and subtleties of accents between the low country and the up country. But for me, being a Brit in the South has been emancipating in its own strange way but I do remind my students when I teach the American Civil War just because I don't sound northern or southern doesn't mean that you're getting the unvarnished truth I have the voice of you know BBC objectivity which is not true um <laughs> so I've had to fight against the opposite to what I grew up with but I think for me it was that more than anything else I I don't I don't pay as much attention to accents now, even though they're all around me, precisely because I've been freed from the, the fact of having to do so.
1: Very good. It's interesting just how accents work for us because, you can ask anyone that knows me, my greatest fear is that my children grow up without a southern accent. And it's, and it's one of these things where even though mine is a low-status accent, I don't have a Charleston, Patrician accent or you know anything like that, you know, I remember my daddy told me when I was uh, right about puberty age, you know, 13, 14. He told me once, he said, son, as you get older, people are going to mock how you speak. They're going to say it makes you sound dumb and it shows you're a fool. He says, whenever you talk to an SOB who uh, says that to you, you just remind him that God talks how we talk. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, Daddy was being a bit glib, but there was also a sense that, you it's know, great, to no. lose this is to lose who I am right and I don't and and it's so interesting that in England every Englishman every Englishwoman I've ever spoken to remarks on the way in which class is so tied up with accents in in England in Britain but here in the south it's its locality it's history it's family it's that and to lose it is basically to spit on your ancestors graves and it's this great shame to lose it no matter how hick it might sound it's yours I mean, you know, the South is the place where, you know, Shelby Foote, you know, becomes the voice of God, as it were, you know, on the Ken Burns documentary, um, which not many people have criticized, but still, you know, there's, he doesn't attenuate his voice in any way, shape, form, or fashion. I attenuate my accent when I talk to y'all, so y'all can understand me. Um, you know, you get me drinking, you know, and, or get me hanging around my Uncle Kent, you know, I'm <laughs> incomprehensible to most people. Um, but... Yeah, it's just, it's fascinating. This is something I, I've never had to unlearn. And I, to unlearn it would be dishonorable, mm. uh, which is really, really interesting. That's, so I'll say, I was asking, you know, what y'all what y'all unlearned coming here and listening to this conversation, directing this conversation with y'all. I've learned things about, how I understand this place and how I understand myself vis-a-vis, how Southerners understand ourselves via those from outside of this place. something that I teach my students about because I read literature about this all the time, but I'm reflecting on things about myself and my own past and my own world just from sitting here talking with y'all for the last hour.
2: I, I, I think you'll both appreciate another very brief anecdote that combines England and the South. I was in England this summer, I gave a paper in Oxford, and then I went to see a friend, a former teacher in Cambridge, and he invited me to a May week party at Trinity. Uh, May week happens in June, and it's lots of champagne corks popping off and strawberries and cream and pretentious English things, no offense. And I'm in Trinity, there's a heat wave uh, in England. I'm wearing a tuxedo because that is what is demanded. It's 95 degrees that day and probably 98 in Trinity. I'm watching a mediocre theatrical performance in a dinner jacket, sweating profusely. You talk about sweating on the way to Thomas Cooper Library. I was drenched and using, sadly, a paper program to scrape sweat off me. It was revolting. (laughs) I look up on the wall and I'm sitting under a portrait of John Locke. And it occurs to me in a flash that John Locke, must have been a student at Trinity, or a fellow there, and that he helped write the fundamental constitutions of South Carolina in the mid-17th century. And I thought, oh, this is incredibly ironic. Here I am, a suffering New Englander, who's really become a bit Southern, sitting in extreme heat in the heart of posh England, (laughs) underneath a portrait of a man who looked to the Carolinas as a place to be exploited, And it just, there's a lot more to it than that, but it just felt somehow harmonious between the South, England, and my ambiguous role. The South goes deep with you even when you're in Cambridge. Indeed. And I
1: think we'll end it there, Uh, whether it be Cambridge, England, or Cambridge, Massachusetts. We've come full circle. And uh, thank you all for this wonderful conversation that I could do for you know hours and hours and hours. Hope you all have uh, enjoyed listening to this today. And until next time, this is Matt Simmons for Take on the South, saying, Y'all take it easy.
0: That was our Take on the South. Let us know yours. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at U of SC South. Take on the South is produced by Matt Simmons of the Institute for Southern Studies. Special thanks to Professor Dave Garner of the University of South Carolina School of Music for composing our music. Tune in next time for another Take on the South.